Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Or is it like a real pain in the neck for you guys having to walk everywhere through the slush? Loving it? Okay. Cool. I, I'm unlike Josiah. I love snow. Um, when I moved from New York to Florida, that was probably the thing I missed the most. You know, I used to live in Rochester, New York, and we would get, you know, three feet of snow at a time. And then I moved to Florida and lived in Florida for seven years. And I think in the seven years I was in Jacksonville, we got like an inch of snow. Uh, in the total, you know, in seven years. So I, I love the snow and miss the snow. Um, but then when I was 12 years old, I got to move back to New York, back to the snow, which was cool. But moving from Florida and a small Christian school in Florida to New York and a very large public junior high was a pretty tough transition. Uh, especially as you're going, I moved as I was going into seventh grade. Like the worst years of your life to have to move, right? Uh, so I would go into a school and I have no friends. Luckily, uh, I came to New York the summer before and played Little League Baseball. And so I got to meet a few kids. Uh, one of the kids that I met, his name was Donnie. Um, I, I need to set the stage for you a little bit, okay? I was a little itty bitty seventh grader. Okay, I mean like tiny. My nickname was Fievel. Does anyone know that reference? Okay, from that American tale, the movie about the little, Fievel was a little, and he was tiny for a mouse. Okay, that's how I was like four foot six and maybe 95 pounds. I needed friends that were bigger than me. And I met Donnie. Donnie was probably, as a 13-year-old, he was a year ahead of me, probably six foot and 250. He was just a big boy, okay? Um, that's, what it, that's what he seemed like to me, okay? Uh, we didn't hang out or anything like that, but we were friendly with each other because we were on the same baseball team. And in seventh grade, I went to this school, Jenny F. Snap Middle School, and it was big. I mean, each graduating class was about 400 students. I came from a school of like 25. So this was big time shock to me. And I didn't know Donnie well, but the first day I met Donnie, or I saw Donnie at school, he was with this crowd, and, and they called themselves the Dirtbags. This is the 80s. So that was just one of the labels. It was a kind of a, a self-description. They wore denim jackets, and they had, you know, Metallica patches and Megadeth patches sewn onto them and pins everywhere. And in our high school, we actually had a smoking section, and all the, the dirtbags would be out in the smoking section, you know, during class, you know. But Donnie was one of them, but Donnie also knew me and was friendly towards me. Uh, and so 
this little kid, you know, walking through the halls. Jenny S. Snap was a two-story junior high. And there was one hallway where the windows opened, which is just a really bad idea. It's on the second floor, and you could get out onto the roof of the first floor. And the dirtbags would often just hang out in that hallway and find kids and throw their backpacks out onto the roof. Rarely did they ever, rarely did they ever try to throw a kid out onto the roof. But I was just the right size to fit through the window, because I was really itty-bitty. And, and they were trying to do this. Until Donnie showed up, and Donnie stopped him. He's like, no, this kid's cool. You know, don't hurt Dan. Fievel. Um, so, yeah, I learned that day that it, it's really good to have friends in the right places. Uh, tonight we're talking about Jesus being our high priest. And I want you to think about that. That story of Donnie and me and having a friend in the right place. You don't have to think about the dirtbag and you know, all the smoking and all that stuff when you think about Jesus being our high priest. But I want you to think about having a friend in the right place. Because I think a lot of times when we hear phrases like, Jesus is our great high priest, we, we miss the importance of that. Because I think for a lot of us, when we think about priests, we think of Roman Catholic priests. And that's a, a good, noble institution of the church, but it's so different uh, than what the author of Hebrews is referring to when he talks about Jesus being our, our great high priest. Our, our points of reference kind of affect how we understand things, right? Bob mentioned that this morning. You know, we talk, when we talk about God being our heavenly father, we all read into that our experience with our fathers. You know, I, me, I think my dad was a protector. He was a he was a big guy, uh, but he was also pretty gruff at times. And, and so I have to, when I hear Jesus, is, or God is my heavenly father, I have to kind of understand my perspective of father is being shaded by that. And when we hear Jesus as our high priest, I think our perspective on what it means for that, for Jesus to be our high priest, is shaded by our experience with, you know, priests in our contemporary world. So we need to get past that. I just want you to think, when you hear Jesus as our high priest, that we have someone who is our friend, and he's in the right place for us. What do priests do? I don't mean, what do priests in the church just across the parking lot do? But what did priests do in Jesus' day and age? Uh, the author of Hebrews is writing in that context when he calls Jesus our great high priest. What did that mean? Well, there's, I think, three things that we can pick up on that, that priests did and that Jesus does for us. Uh, the first is probably one that you would be able to pick up on right away if you read the Old Testament. Priests offered sacrifices. Uh, that was one of their daily duties. I mean, day in and day out, every day, people were bringing sacrifices to be offered. Burnt sacrifices, grain offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, thank offerings, wave offerings. Uh, there's a whole long list of different kinds of offerings and sacrifices that people would bring the priests and the priests would offer on their behalf. Now again, this is so removed from our Context. It's hard to relate to that. But offering sacrifices, you bring your, your pigeon, your dove, your, your 
um, cattle, your sheep, to be sacrificed, that was a costly thing to begin with. It, it costs you something to bring your best, your best that you could afford to be sacrificed. But it would be also it would be an assault on all of your senses. Uh, the sacrifice was slaughtered right there. Blood, smells. The priest would often sprinkle the blood on you. And it was just a reminder of how horrific sin is. That it takes this. And how much sin costs to atone for. So the priest would offer these sacrifices all the time. And especially on the Day of Atonement. One day in particular year, they would offer sacrifices for the whole nation of Israel. To atone for their sins. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our high priest and he offers a better sacrifice. It's not the sacrifice of bulls or goats or birds or grain. It's the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice of infinite value and worth. He offers himself the pure, spotless lamb. He is himself the sacrifice that he as our high priest offers to God to make atonement for our sin. So priests, they offer sacrifice. Priests also intercede, pray for the people. You know, in the Old Testament there was the tabernacle, which was this portable tent that people used to go to and that's where the priests were ministering and they would offer the sacrifices and they would go and worship there. And then later on in Israel's history, there was a temple. In both the tabernacle and the temple, there was places where only the priests were allowed to, grow, to go. There was an inner sanctuary called the holy place. And only the priests could go into that. They would go into the holy place every day, usually a couple times a day. To make sure that the lamps that were burning in the holy place had enough oil to replace the bread of the presence that represented how God provided for his people. And they would continually burn incense that represented the prayers of the priesthood on behalf of the people. They were supposed to be constantly representing the people before God in prayer. Last week, Josiah talked about how Jesus is a prophet. And prophets represented God to the people. They spoke God's words to the people. Revealing God's character, God's will, God's laws. And calling the people to account. Well, in a way, the priest is the opposite of that. The priest represents the people to God. And as they were making intercession for people, they were speaking to God on behalf of the people. So you had this holy place where the priests would go and they would burn, burn incense that represents the prayers for the people. And then inside that holy place, there was another sanctuary that was divided by this big, heavy, thick curtain called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And people were only allowed to go into that place one time a year. The high priest was the only person who ever had access to the Holy of Holies. And they would only go in on that special day, that day of atonement. And they would go in having purified themselves, making sacrifices for themselves because, well, 
They were kind of like us. They sinned. And before they went into that holy of holy place, they had to make sacrifices for themselves to atone for their own sins. And then they would bring the sacrifice for the whole people and bring it into the holy of holies and sprinkle the blood on the altar that was there. They were the, the go-betweens between holy God and unholy people. Uh, they made intercessions. They represented the people to God. And throughout Scripture, you see just how important that intercessor is, that person who goes between, that mediator who goes between us and God. But you also see it's really important to have the right kind of intercessor, the right kind of mediator to make your plea for you. Um, my kids understand this. I have three boys, 12, 10, and I think 7. Um, I'll have to check on that when I get home. Uh, I think 7. And sometimes, you know, as we're driving or, you know, we're downstairs, we can hear them arguing about who has to go and ask mom and dad the question. And it could be, can we go for ice cream or can we have a dessert or can we stay up late tonight? But they always have this little powwow beforehand and decide, okay, who should go and ask? And it's usually like, okay, like, no, they're still mad at me because I broke the lamp. And, you know, Jake, no, not me. I'm, you know, whatever. You go, Luke. You're the cute one. You know, and, and he is. And he's manipulative, too, so he usually gets his way. Uh, but there's this, they have to have the right person to go and represent them. Let me tell you, if you're looking for an intercessor, you can't do any better than Jesus. Uh, he's God's son. Um, he's sinless. And he's sympathetic to us. He's God's son. Which means, you know, God looks on him with great favor. And he's sinless. The book of Hebrews makes that point incredibly clear. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself. And there's no danger that God's mad with him because of something he's done. He's a sinless, perfect intercessor. And he's sympathetic. At this time of year, Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. God becoming man for us. And the book of Hebrews puts a spin on this. It's necessary that God became a man so that he could die for us. That's important. But it's also important so that he could sympathize with us in all our frailties and in all of our weaknesses. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is our brother. He was tempted in every way just like we are. And yet he remains sinless. So he can sympathize with all of our struggles, with all of our temptations, with all of our frailties and so he's a sympathetic high priest. He's not one that stands far off and is aloof. But one who's entered into our situation and knows what it's like. So Jesus is a sinless intercessor. He's the son of God, so he makes a really good intercessor. And he's sympathetic. And he's in the right place. He's in the very throne room of God. He's seated at the right hand of God. 
See, this earthly tabernacle, this tent and the earthly temple, were meant to just be pictures of heaven. The book of Hebrews, again, calls them shadows of the heavenly reality. And the priests would get to go in there once a year. But Jesus dwells at the right hand of God day in and day out. He's our, our perfect high priest forever, making our pleas for us. That's what priests do. They offer sacrifices and they intercede for people. But the third thing I think is maybe even more basic than that. And the third thing is that they just are supposed to respond to God on behalf of the people. They're to respond to God, to his, his voice, His presence, His will. They're to respond to God on behalf of the people. You can see that in the Old Testament priests, but I think you see it most explicitly in Adam. You don't normally think of Adam as being a priest, but I think the Bible sets that up for us. It doesn't make it explicit, but I think it hints at it. That the garden wasn't just your typical garden. It was a temple. A temple for God. You, you get this in the language that you see in, in the Old Testament. When it talks about God's relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden, it says God was with them in a, a powerful, profound, very intimate way. He used to walk with them in the garden. The words that are there used to describe how God was with Adam and Eve in the garden are the same words that are used to describe how God was with the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. Eden is called this, the garden of God. It's also called called God's holy mountain in the book of Ezekiel. And the temple is also called God's holy mountain. The book of Ezekiel also refers to the Garden of Eden as a sanctuary. Like the temple, and like the tabernacle were called sanctuaries. And Adam was put in the garden, he was created outside the garden, and then put in the garden to cultivate it, or work it, and keep it. Those two verbs, work and keep, are the same charge, the same command that God gave the priests in the tabernacle. Work, or better, serve and keep, or guard. So I think the Bible sets up for us that Adam was a priest in this garden temple of God. Well, Adam didn't have to offer sacrifices. There was no sin to atone for. He didn't really have to intercede on behalf of people. From what we know, there weren't a whole lot of other people around at the time. But what did he have to do? He had to respond to God in appropriate ways. Respond in obedience. Respond in worship. Respond in thankfulness for all that God had given him and blessed him with. We know Adam failed in that, but Christ doesn't. Christ responds to God in the appropriate way, with worship, glorifying God, with perfect obedience. And, and here I think we see that 
the complementary nature of, of Christ's offices. Josiah talked about him being a prophet, and I'm here speaking about him being a priest. You put the two together, and you get some really good news. One without the other? I'm not sure. As prophet, Jesus says, here's what God demands. Holiness. Perfection. Just read the Sermon on the Mount sometime. The standard's high. That's good, but I can't do it. Uh, recently, I've been coaching diving at uh, uh, the high school out in Ellettsville. It's fun. I love telling people what to do. On the other side of it, it wasn't always fun being coached because you're like, yeah, coach, I know. I should jump higher and spin faster and go in straighter. I can't. You know, and we can't always do what we want to do, what we know we ought to do. And so Jesus telling us what we ought to do isn't that helpful. But Jesus doing it for us is. Jesus, as prophet, reveals God's will to us. His, he reveals God to us in his holy character. Jesus, as our priest, steps in in our place and responds perfectly to God. And he does it for us. Christ responds. He, he, he says amen to everything God has said and accomplishes it perfectly. So he's the perfect priest, responding perfectly to God, offering the perfect sacrifice, and interceding for us continually at God's right hand. Great theology. What's it mean? How does it impact you tonight or tomorrow? Well, <clears throat> meditate on that idea of him being a sympathetic high priest for a minute. Again, I, I can pick on my kids because they're not here. In the morning services, I have to be more careful because they're there. Um, but my son Caleb, he's in junior high now, and he's going through this phase where everything is just complicated. You know, we ask him, how was your day? Oh, it was complicated. Or, you know, how are you and your friends doing? Oh, it's just hard to explain. Like, really? Uh, or you wouldn't understand. Really? You, you don't think we'd understand, huh? I think we've been there. I think we've done that. But that's never a worry when we take our concerns to Jesus. Never. But we don't ever have to think, Jesus, God, you don't understand. He understands our situation better than we do. He can put his finger on the root of the pain, on the root of the discomfort, on the root of the struggle better than we can. And he can sympathize with it. He's our sympathetic high priest. So the book of Hebrews says, if that's the case, we have to go boldly to the throne. Knowing we have someone who is in the right place, in the throne room of God, and is on our side in a sympathetic way. He can make intercessions for us. He can pray for us in ways that we can't even articulate. I think for my son Caleb, it's not always that he's afraid we can't understand. 
It's more of an issue is he can't articulate. That's my issue in prayer like every day. But I don't have to worry about it. Because Jesus knows it. And he can sympathize with it. And he prays not just with me but for me. So I, I hope that that's an encouragement in your prayer life. Uh, the second thing I think you can take away from this is, I don't know about you, but I often battle feelings of, of guilt and, and shame. Um, Martin Luther is one of my favorite people in all of church history. I mean, he's just a colorful figure. He liked beer. He liked cussing. He's okay in my book. Um, but he's a guy who struggled through his whole life with guilt and shame and he would have these kind of verbal, out loud arguments with the devil. Uh, if you want to watch, there's a movie called Luther, and it depicts it well. Um, and he would just be in these shouting matches with the devil. And the devil would be, in his mind, well, what? the devil was just lobbing accusations at him, and Luther would respond. One time he said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is there, I shall also be. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest who offered himself as an atonement for our sin. So yes, we sin, but there has been a perfect sacrifice offered for us. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. And because of that, we can have confidence, even in the face of Satan's accusations, that we will be where he is. He's promised to bring us there. So as you battle those feelings of, of guilt and shame in your life, understand that you have a priest who's covered the guilt and covered the shame with a perfect sacrifice, namely himself. So understand, go to him in prayer, understand what he's done for you and use that to battle guilt and shame and persevere. Persevere in your faith. It maybe sounds like an odd application of Jesus being our high priest, but it's one that I feel confident making because the book of Hebrews makes it pretty Pretty blatantly. Says, this is our sympathetic, sympathetic high priest. He is a great high priest. He's the son of God. Now persevere in your faith. Don't fall away from your faith. Don't turn away from it. Because for heaven's sake, where are you going to turn and find something better than Jesus? I mean, where are you going to go? Are you going to go to a dumb idol? Dumb idols can't pray for you. Pray with you. Don't go there. Are you going to find a better way to God than the way of Jesus, who is God's Son? Probably not. Are you going to find a, a better priest than this sinless priest who intercedes for you forever and ever? He'll never die and be replaced by a different priest. He's there forever and ever to intercede for you. Is it possible that you're going to find a better sacrifice for your sin? Is it better, or is it possible that you're going to 
somehow work and become yourself a better sacrifice than the sacrifice that Jesus has already made for you? The author of Hebrews kind of rehearses all that stuff. He's like, no, there's nothing better, no better treasure, no better sacrifice, no better priest than Jesus. Don't fall away from him. Cling to him as though you're clinging to life itself. Uh, this Christmas season, as we focus on the birth of Jesus, remember what it was for. It wasn't just so we'd have cute cards to send. It was so he could represent us to God. This Christmas season, cling to that. Let that be your source of, of hope and of peace and of great joy, knowing that God loved you so much that he would don flesh to represent us. Uh, with that in mind, I asked the band if they... When they came back up, if we could sing that song again that we kind of went into the sermon, before the throne of God above, because it takes so many of these themes that we've just meditated on, and it highlights them, and it turns them back into worship. So as I pray, the, the worship team is going to go, come back up and, and lead us in that song one more time, I hope maybe with fresh meaning now. Father, we thank you for this season where we celebrate the incarnation, the infleshedness, of your Son, Jesus. Father, we know that it was your perfect plan that he would become flesh so that he could represent us before you, so that he could become that perfect high priest, so that he could offer the perfect sacrifice, so that he could sympathize with us, his brothers and sisters, in all our weakness and in our frailty. Father, we pray that we wouldn't turn aside from that, but that you'd find us faithful persevering in our hope and in our trust that what you've done in Jesus Christ is certainly enough to bring us to you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.